from the city of brotherly love. This is Shark Bite Biz with David Strausser. You just arrived to the newest episode of Shark Bite Biz. I'm your glamorous host, David Strausser, and this is your place to learn how to grow a business during complete global chaos. Today, all about inspiration and creativity. First, though, we are hot off of our first live stream last Monday night back on July 25th. It's been a long, long, long week. It feels like it happened a year ago, but it was only seven days ago to the day. And it was our first Shark Bite Biz live show. I've been teasing it for months. We finally went out. We did it. It was shown right here on YouTube. We had nearly 900 concurrent viewers at one point during the show and in fact you know the replays of the show it's nearly up to about 4,000 views without even one single ad or anything so it was really good and it was super super special for us hey a big huge shout out to our co-hosts of data pine and g7 tech services and vision 33 my company where i work that really sponsored the event and helped us bring it all together to come together and and really just make it happen so i'm beyond belief the pilot was successful and this fall we will be launching our own you know regularly scheduled live stream show it's going to be business and tech news of the day whatever hot topics are trending that day we're going to cover it and then have a special interview and then once again we'll cover all of the chats and super chats at the end of the show so also don't forget to help out the show if you love what we're doing if you want to see more shark bite biz live please do me a favor go to deadhousecoffee.com where you can get the freshest coffee known on earth that is roasted sealed and shipped to your doorstep within a 24 hour period plus use the code shark you'll get 20 percent off of your order and all the proceeds directly help us doing all the wonderful work that we're doing here at Shark Bite Biz. Back to today's show. It's a great show because I, I gotta tell you, I was kind of surprised when I got into the interview of what it was about. I thought it was going to be one thing, and then a couple minutes before, it was like, Oh, I get it. And uh, it really comes full circle for us during this show, talking about all those things that small business owners love, you know, creativity, innovation, as well as just the art of doing business. So who do we have today? None other than Gramps Jeffrey. Gramps Jeffrey's children's book, I Don't Want to Turn Three, explores what goes through a toddler's mind that parents are so desperate to understand. I would say married couples have that same thing, what the other one's thinking. But back on topic with children's books, uh, it is based on the true experience that he has had with his six grandchildren that were born to each of his three millennial daughters. Gramps Jeffrey is the pen name for Mark Joseph, whose first book, The Secrets of Retailing, How to Beat Walmart, was written to help entrepreneurs and small businesses compete against the big guys. Ariana Huffington read his book and asked him to contribute to the Huffington Post. 
He has written over 100 articles about small businesses, education, the homeless, and several other nonprofit topics dear to all of us. Gramps and his lovely wife, Kathy, live in Scottsdale, Arizona, where two of his grandchildren live. Two more live in Austin, Texas, and two in Orlando, Florida. So, hey, without further delay, let's bring Gramps Jeffrey right on in here. Creative and innovation tips. Gramps, welcome to Shark Bite Biz. You, my friend, you just became Shark Bait. Hey, thank you so much for inviting me. I think it's going to be fun. No, it's it's going to be a blast. And uh, first off, I've got to thank you. We connected through LinkedIn, and I was just kind of like, hey, you know, I think you'd be awesome to have in the show. And you were like, sure, I'll be on your show. And then you, you sent me two signed copies of both your books, which everybody, um, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see this. If you're not, we'll give you info at the end of the show where you can find them. But thank you so much for sending the two books. I got the I Don't Want to Turn Three and the secrets of retailing or how to beat Walmart. And uh, we'll, we'll dig deeper into both of those in a second, but we've got to start it off because we have a tradition on the show. Very first question, who are you? Where do you come from? What do you do for a living? How did you get where you're at? Basically, in a nutshell, tell us what makes Gramps, Gramps. I come from a family of entrepreneurs. And, you know, my, my dad, my grandfather on both sides were entrepreneurs. And, but I decided to go into the real corporate world. So I spent the early part of my career in corporate uh, retailing and wholesaling for a couple of the major chain stores. And then finally, the entrepreneur bug came back to me. And I said, I really do want to be an entrepreneur, just like my family had been. Uh, so I've started a couple of businesses. One business I sold to investors and the other business uh, I took public. And it became the premier business to business site on the Internet where we sell case quantity small businesses all around the world in all 50 states, around 40 foreign countries. Customer base are the moms and the pops are surviving, thriving as the chains. So based on uh, starting this business is we started to build a customer base of uh, entrepreneurs, small business owners. And I was getting calls all the time on how do you do this? How do you do that? So I figured I'll write a book. So that's where the secrets of retailing, how to beat Walmart came from. How long ago did it come out? It came out uh, in the mid 2000s. Um, so, so, you know, things have changed with, from them, but not a lot. It's interesting when you go back and read the book, a lot of the same concepts are the same. You know, I have, um, uh, Jeffrey Gittimer. Have you heard of him? If his name's Jeffrey, it's gotta be a good name. <laughs> well, he has a book that is, uh, the little red book is selling. And he also has another one that's called the sales Bible. Um, and he's got a slew of books, like a little yellow book of this, a little black book of that, you know, that's just, that's just, that's a stick and you know it's pretty cool but the like the sales bible for example that came out over 20 years ago and people were like you know why are you having yourself or your sales rep read those books i mean they're a little bit dated there's a lot newer stuff out that might be better and you know i read the book again probably for like the fifth time and i'm like no, I mean, it's kind of weird because it's almost like we've kind of around full circle to where some of a lot of the stuff that he says back then 
now in this COVID age and, and getting, you know, hopefully looks like getting into post COVID world, that's where this stuff is relevant again. And it, it is different and doing these things are different because people aren't doing these things as much. Do you think the same could be said out of the secrets of retailing? Yeah. The reason being is it's 15 chapters and each chapter attacks something different. So for instance, how to hire your people, how to find your location, where to find your resources, how to price your goods, how to do marketing online, how to do marketing in the regular world. So each chapter is different. And the last chapter is how to sell the business. You know, and that hasn't changed much. You know, it's, you go through the same thing of how to sell. What about the marketing, the marketing part? Because uh, marketing has evolved, you know, marketing online uh, over the past uh, couple decades, uh, you know, who you look from the nineties where it first started up until where it is today in 2022, it's changed pretty, pretty drastically. How do you think your, your book fits into that space in, in these days? Well, you're still talking to customers and you're still figuring out how do you get customers? You know, what's interesting about today's world and being an entrepreneur and starting a business, in my opinion, this is the best time in the history of the United States to become an entrepreneur and start a small business. Uh, you know, and, if, and it's been driven because of the changes. You know, when uh, back when I wrote this book and so forth, everything was brick and mortar retail. That's the way life was. Um, but that's evolved. And but brick and mortar retail is very expensive to open up. You know, you got to find a location, you got to hire people, you got to find products. Now with what's happened with Amazon and Walmart and online, you know, it's a whole different world. If you're an entrepreneur with a great idea or a great product, you now have all kinds of ways to market your product. You know, in the older days, you had your town, you could market to the town, you know, that's how it was. But today you have the world. So you, if, 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 in, if your product or your item that you come up with, there's only 10 people in your town that like it. In the old days, you couldn't sell it. But all you need is 10 people in every town to like it. And all of a sudden, you've got a great business. So I would encourage if any of your listeners are now thinking about opening a business or don't want to take that step, do it. This is the time. This is the time for entrepreneurs to rise and become the best that this country has ever produced. So I want to ask you a question because you've mentioned the E word now probably about 50 times in like the five minutes that we've been recording with entrepreneur. I just had Angela McArdle on the show. She was our season four finale. Uh, she's actually the chair of the Libertarian Party, and she's big into mom and pop businesses and entrepreneurship and all of that stuff. And she feels that there's a weird cultural shift going on right now to where, and don't get me wrong, I'm pure entrepreneurial. I got that built into my blood. But a lot of the younger generation, it, it, it's kind of like that's a yucky word for them. Do you see that at all? Do you relate with that? Do you, I mean, what's your feeling on that? Like they want to stay away from it. They view it as greed in a way, you know, that it's not a good thing to be an entrepreneur in 2022. What's interesting, if you look back at the history of the United States, every generation, starting with George Washington's, 10% of the population want to be or are become entrepreneurs. And it doesn't vary. 
It, it happened in the 1770s and the 1800s and the 1900s and the 2000s. And it's true today. There are about 10% of the population that really want to be that entrepreneur that takes that step. There's lots of people, 40 or 50% think they're entrepreneurs or want to do it, but they don't, they don't have the guts to take that shot because it takes, it takes, takes guts. It takes a chance uh, because, you know, entrepreneurs, as we all know, 50% of them fail. Yeah. And so, you know, you've got, uh, you know, you've got 20% of entrepreneurs fail in their first year, uh, 50% fail in the, after five years, uh, you know, and, and the reasons that they fail, the reasons that entrepreneurs fail is, you know, 42% of the time, there really is not a market for their product. You know, we all come up with these great ideas. We think we got the greatest thing since sliced bread. And we think there's a market for our product. But, you know, most entrepreneurs fail because it's a personal market. When you're a buyer, and I learned that when I was in corporate America, uh, you don't buy for yourself. You buy for your customers. And so many of us lose touch that, you know, entrepreneurs, you know, that the, the, our idea is the greatest thing and everybody's going to want it. You know, 29% fail because they don't have enough capital. You know, you, you, you step back a second, you got to figure that for the first six months when you're opening up a business, you know, you're not going to have sales. You just got to plan it that way. So you got to go in with enough capital to cover you and your expenses for the first six months. So but 29 percent of, uh, you know, a, a small business fail because they don't have enough capital and 23 percent fail. Can I just add in, chime in one thing on that last point there? Sure. Even existing businesses. OK, we're, we're technically a small business with my day job at Vision 33. And, you know, we launched a, a new brand. Uh, we specialize with SAP Business One as our bread and butter for, you know, probably 20 years, became number one globally. And we ended up launching a second division with Sage Intact. And that was a much longer, harder road. It really, I mean, you look at six months, it took us probably closer to 13, 14 months worth of time and investment to actually get it right and get the sales machine turning and dedicated. And now we're doing pretty decent. But, you know, even with an established business that has an established, hey, this is how you sell. This is how you market. Like we have all those machines churning by adding a second product line. It, it took us, you know, well over a year to be able to really get that engine turning. So I, I think six months is, I, depending what business you're in, what that industry you're in, you know, that could be conservative. I think there's cases out there where it could be longer too. Yeah, it depends on what the difference between the time of the sale and how, when you approach them when the time of the sale. Some sales happen the first day, some take six months, some take a year. That, that's the type of deals we're in, where they usually take three to six months, maybe a year or two. I mean, we just closed one after four, four and a half years. Uh, it took us to close this one deal. We just got to close finally at the end of quarter two. Yeah, and then the last thing I was going to say is close to a quarter, 23% of businesses fail because they... Are, don't create teamwork and communication. You know, the first thing that I learned when I, when I started a business is I'm not the expert in everything. There are so many things that I don't even like. You know, why, why stress yourself out and try to do it all when you should be hiring people who love that kind of stuff? You know, I'm not an accountant. If I had to spend an eight hours a day doing accounting kind of stuff, I would go absolutely nuts. You've got to surround yourself with people that have 
you know, love for things that you're not the expert in. And, and entrepreneurs have to realize they're not the expert in everything. Ego, ego is a, is a hard thing there. I think that that is something that some people deal better than with others. Like, for example, some people can be like, hey, you know what? Uh, I'm going to uh, hire this person because they're better than me at this. Whereas some people, they just can't, their ego won't allow them to say that somebody else is better than them. And I think that's one of their greatest uh, prohibitors in success. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So it's a journey. And again, going back to only 10% of Americans really want to take that journey. That's absolutely true. And I love a lot of those stats and percents that you've thrown out. I've never known that, uh, you know, about 10% going all the way back to Washington's time were actually small mom and, you know, mom and pop type business uh, entrepreneurs, which brings me to my next question on that same topic is, you know, Again, with the the mom and pop business, you you said earlier that right now is probably the greatest time in history to start a business. We just finished, I I think we just finished, probably one of the greatest transfer of wealth, you know, in all of history, given to the Walmarts, to the Amazons, to all those giant big companies, okay? With that having to happen, how does that change the landscape going forward from here. Do you think that transfer has stopped and it's safe that mom and pops can get back out there and compete now? Or do you think this COVID thing is still going to make it hard for mom and pops to really get out there and fight with these huge giant businesses? The internet is what is giving the moms and pops the opportunity to compete. Because again, You can reach all kinds of markets that you couldn't do 20 years ago. You can talk to all kinds of customers that you couldn't do 20 years ago. You can do research on how to target customers. You couldn't do that 20 years ago. So the, this internet, and and if you think about it, and it goes back to my children's book when it comes down to it is that, you know, I wasn't involved into, I didn't know do the internet and all this until I was 40 years old, but you know, these little kids today, are coming out as soon as they come out. Yeah, you know, and and these little kids coming out today, as soon as they come out, they're on the internet, they're on cell phones, they have the electronic ability, the knowledge that they are getting today versus my generation. I'm a baby boomer, huh? you know, we are who we are. And, uh, and, and, and they will take this country to the next level. Yeah, you know? and it's up to us as parents and grandparents to balance everything they're learning on the internet with the real world and how to live just normally. So it looks like you learned the internet pretty quick and were able to take advantage of it. I mean, you had mentioned about when, you know, you learned the internet when you were about 40 40 years old. And it's funny because when you had said that, it triggered a story that I, I honestly just told my kids the other day. And it was when maybe late 80s, early 90s, it was probably like uh, seven or eight at the time, be hanging out with their friends and they'd be like, hey, dial this number. And I'd be like, why? And they're like, it's the devil. Okay. And I'm like, the devil? 
And I'm like, okay, let's, let's, let's see, you know, and we would all be scared here. I mean, all we were doing was calling up like a fax machine or some kind of internet service provider for dial up internet because he'd hear those weird tones and stuff like that. But we had no idea what it was at that time. And that's why me, even though I'm 39, I don't view myself as a millennial. I strongly believe that between Gen X and millennial, there is a micro generation in between uh, that I identify as called the Xennial because of the fact that we grew up analog, like we were born analog and things like that, like dial up modems. I mean, it was like, what's this? We had no idea. Uh, you know, and then then we converted digital as we got older into the end of high school and stuff like that. So no, no, that's just my my take on that. But I wanted to give you that that funny side story. So you ended up selling your business. What ended? Why you got two books? So your first book, The Secrets of Retailing. What? made you want to write it? Was it just because so many people kept asking you the same questions that you mentioned? Yeah, they were, you know, and I kept repeating myself. I said, well, maybe I should do this, but I guess I wanted to be, I wanted to be a writer. Tired of repeating yourself. Read the damn book. I think I wanted to be a writer early on. Uh, when I was in college, my best friend and I decided we were going to backpack through Europe for 11 weeks. So, you know, we, uh, we, we did, did, did everything you do with the riding and trains and sleeping hostels and renting, uh, you know, motorcycle, whatever it is. But I kept a journal. I decided I was going to keep a journal every day. So I got this journal, I put together this journal and, uh, you know, when I was writing this journal, it was about people it was about people and experiences yeah, and then about um, you know, ten years later, my friend called me. He says, "You got to read our journal." Uh, he says, "He says it's unbelievable." He says, uh, "He says you need to be a writer." So I've always had that in the back of my mind. And then when the opportunity came up, where I said, "Hey, I can educate a bunch of our customers on basic things that they need to know to be successful," that's what got me into uh, writing my first book. Have you ever? So that's a pretty cool story about how the first book came about. But my other question that comes out of that is, have you ever thought about publishing your journal? I mean, if it's that good, that intimate uh, details. I mean, just some rando journal, you can self-publish that relatively easy. It, someone would find it. I'm sure one person would buy it. Maybe only me, but. <laughs> uh, you know, what happened was when my first book came out, The Secrets of Retailing, uh, Arian Huffington read it. And, you know, she's the, uh, at the time, had the Huffington Post. Huffington Post, yes. Yeah, she asked me to contribute to the Huffington Post. So I've written over 100 articles for the Huffington Post on all kinds of different things uh, about small businesses. But a lot of the uh, articles I've written about are about nonprofits, about the homeless and education and uh, all kinds of uh, education. And the reason that being is what evolved as our business, because um, the business was geared towards moms and pops. But what happened, and you know, and, and as you well know, talking to people in businesses, businesses evolve; they change. You know, your idea that you were going to do something may change and evolve. And in our particular case, what happened was Katrina hit. If you remember, Katrina was uh, down in uh, 2005 and six uh, for Louisiana and Mississippi, 
And because we were so dominant on the internet, we had thousands and thousands of keywords and phrases that were organically ranked one, two, and three. But all of a sudden, we were getting these calls from all these churches and schools who wanted to help the people and uh, they were suffering. So, you know, we went through all kinds of underwear and socks and toothpaste and toothbrushes. And then when they opened up the uh, trailers, we went through all the kitchen goods and the bathroom goods and the bedroom goods. And so it opened up a wide idea to us that the nonprofit world was obviously underserved and it gave us a chance to go in and really go after the nonprofits uh, so that we could they could yeah that we could they would buy from us at wholesale and close out prices and they could stretch their dollars and help more people and so that's how I got involved in doing a lot of you go to the Huffington Post you'll see a bunch of my articles are about the nonprofit organizations and how we as a society can need to help uh, bring this country along and get more involved in, in making sure that we take care of each other. When I was out there in L.A., so I've, my backstory, viewers of this show know I lived down in Mexico for like 15 years, lived in Peru for a year, then San Diego, L.A., and now out in Philly, but um, and a small stint in Sacramento, but we'll skip that one. Uh, but when I was out in L.A., I mean, yeah, we had, you know, we had homelessness down there in San Diego, but I would mostly see it down by the border region where you have, you know, mostly bums, you know, homeless people that would just live down there. They'd beg and they were making good money begging in San Ysidro. Then they go back down to Tijuana and live. But when I lived in Los Angeles, homelessness was at a whole nother level. Like I, um, I, I could not believe it like the first time obviously um, you know growing up I li listened to bands like uh, Skid Row stuff like that and when I learned that that was an actual place it's like oh I've got to go visit it and when I went there it was like no I don't want to visit it uh, because it is it is atrocious it is horrible and and um, living out there every single year in my brother's name, I uh, uh, I have two two younger brothers that pass away. I'd always donate for the Thanksgiving and and Christmas meals and stuff like that for uh, Skid Row. But that that's something that uh, I agree with you. It always touches my heart, and that's a topic that I'm also very compassionate about personally as well. Interesting, because that kind of leads into my my kids' book. Perfect. The theme of the kids' book is, you know, I I don't want to turn three. You know, and then uh, living this past uh, uh, year caused by the pandemic, COVID nineteen, in isolation, except for being able to be with my family, you know, it gave me a chance to kind of watch and interact with these grandkids. And I got to tell you, what a trip that was. Um, yeah, I had six grandkids and it happens they were all here for six weeks during the pandemic. Uh, two of them live here in Arizona, two live in Austin, Texas, and two live in Orlando, Florida. So they're scattered, but they all we had them all together. So but watching them gave me a chance to, to, to really understand and see their sense of curiosity. You know, how excited they do get when they do accomplish something. You know, watch them grow year to year and, and, and how they interact with each other really is the basis for my kids' book. Especially because it happened during COVID. I mean, depending on where they were living, some people were more freer to do things than other. But having that escape to be together, I'm sure they're not together 
you know, as frequently as I'd like to be, that had to be, you know, kind of eye-opening just to observe how that interaction went during that time period. Oh, yeah. You know, what goes through a toddler's mind is the parents are so desperate to understand. You know, when does a toddler understand the difference between uh, me and us? Uh, so this kind of, this book kind of explores it all together. But more importantly, you know, as a baby boomer trying to understand, you know, how the world has evolved since I was three years old, you know, it's also kind of part of this whole story. You know, my parents, they didn't have the cell phones. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have cable TV. They didn't have the remotes. I was my dad's remote. He's his son, go change the channel. Same with me. That's kind of the TV we had. Yeah. And so, so really, it, so the, the real theme uh, of this book is at what age do you start to begin to take uh, the responsibility for your actions? Is it three years old? Is it 13 years old? Is it 23 years old? Or in my case, with all these baby boomers I know, they still don't take the responsibility for reactions at 63 years old. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I, I don't know. I'm, ta- I'm making a wild guess here, but I'm going to say that you're probably settled on the age of three. You know, what happened with the, uh, the age of three, this story is a 30 page book. So it's a quick story is that, uh, you know, Jordan was two turning three tomorrow, but every interaction he had, and this is basically the story. Which by the way, when Jordan being in that book, my son's name is Jordan. So once I told him, I said, I'm not going to read it to you to after we do the interview. Because once, you know, pages will get crimpled and stuff like that. But I want to keep it pristine to the interview. But after it, I'm going to read it because every time he hears a name, Jordan, he it doesn't matter if it's a sales rep in our company or whatever. He thinks we're talking about him. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah, my Jordan now turned four, too, because we wrote the book about a year ago. But uh, so so basically, you know, Jordan interacting with all these kids. And I guess it's based on a true story. All the pictures in the books are pictures that I took. I sent them to the illustrator and she made them into cartoons. Like for instance, on the front page or the cover that you see, um, that is uh, two of the boys in the bathtub I took a picture of. It happens to be uh, Levi and Jackson and, and Levi loves wearing goggles in the bathtub. And so that's, you know, that's what it's all about. But so anyway, Jordan, you know, takes all his cousin's toys. He takes the sea creatures, the dinosaurs, the, the, and, and then on his third birthday, when everybody's together, his uh, Olivia, his eight-year-old cousin, discovers all their toys in his room. My daughter's name is Liv. So wow. there you go. I, what a I, 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 yeah. Are, are you, can I just call you dad for now? But go ahead, keep going. Sorry. So, you know, and then uh, the hero of the, the book is the father. He calls all the kids together and he gets them to the talk. And Olivia comes up with this idea. She says, we need to give all of our toys that we've taken from each other and all these toys that he got for his birthday and give it to the homeless kids downtown. And that's how the story ends. So the, you know, you said that kind of comes together what we were talking about earlier. Uh, yeah. And, but this is a true, this, this is Olivia's idea. It wasn't my idea to come up with that. It was Olivia's idea that, that they should do it all. And so again, it goes back to, I think this is the greatest generation coming up now, because if they're able to think through things like that, when they're eight years old, you know, then this country has a chance. Yeah. 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 And no, I definitely agree. So one thing that I've always done is Around Christmas time, we usually let the kids pick, you know, hey, go pick one gift 
for yourself, you know, and, you know, we get two of them. Okay. And they, you know, when they were younger, they thought, oh, I get two of these dolls and we would make them donate it into the Toys for Tots thing. So that way we were making sure I don't want to don't, if I'm donating a toy, I want to donate a toy I know kids alike. So I'm going to get something my kid would like, because I'm pretty sure other kids would like what, you know, Mike, at least some one kid would like what my son or daughter likes. And when they were, you know, two, three and not so cool about it, you know, uh, Jordan, when he was three, is a little bit of a battle, but he eventually, <laughs> okay, you know, and throws it in there. Liv, who's now nine, I mean, she does it a lot, a lot easier. Um, you know, it's, it's not a struggle with her. She understands, she gets it. She's like, oh, this is a good thing. That's so sweet, you know, and compassionate about it. So I'm really interesting to see, you know, Jordan being four, he's going to be turning five this year, starting kindergarten, getting those experience. I'm really interested to see how he's going to react to that and how he has matured, you know, throughout the past year. It's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of like, you know how some people, you know, put the marking on the wall to get their kids height and they keep that and they look at that as a memory as the kids grew. I mean, I kind of view my measuring stick by how they react to throwing those toys into the toys for top bin. You know, you bring up a great point is what is parents responsibility in today's world? What really is, you know, in today's world, with all this instant information that we've been talking about, the uncertainty, the cruelty that we're seeing on television, the differences in ideas, you know, what is really the true role of parents? Obviously, parents are there to provide uh, their kids with uh, food and clothing and a place to live. Obviously, uh, they're also there to provide financial support and uh, medical care and uh, the chance to have an education. Um, but and we need them there to protect our kids in today's world. I mean, just read the news today. And you've got the, the, how, do, how do we create a safe environment, you know, which obviously includes supervision and controlling the situation. But, but, you know, never lose sight that the parents are the most influential uh, people in our children's life. You know, they have more power to bring all the good qualities that, that they need in life, things that you're talking about. You know, you know traits that parents should strive to, to have, and including the kids, honesty, responsibility, kindness, you know, independence, respect, uh, positive thinking, you know, all this is stuff that you were talking about, the creativity, healthy, how to eat healthy, how to exercise, how to stay in shape, you know, success that can be learned from failure. I mean, we all fail. You know, staying in shape, staying in shape, that has been one of the toughest things to do for the last three years. Okay. And I'll, I'll tell you why, especially as a parent. Because you had lockdowns, you had COVID, limited, restricted, a lot of, I mean, even here in Pennsylvania, and I'm sure that in California, it was probably worse, or New York City, you know, it was very restricted. It was very hard to, what do you do with the kids, you know? Some parents would let kids play together, other parents won't, you know? And it was a tough time to be a parent during, during that time period. And that that's the one thing that concerns me. You know, the homeschooling, all that stuff. How will that affect the future generations, that experience that they had of two plus years in lockdown? And then we get out of the COVID mode and we're in major inflation mode to where, you know, things are crazily expensive. So instead of getting life back to normal, you, you kind of can't because a lot of people just can't afford it. 
And who knows what's next, whether it's a full-blown recession or if we start to get back to normal and it's just a dip. I mean, it, it makes it, I, I think the last three years is being a parent has been probably the hard, and I have a 19 year old as well too. So I've been a parent for 19 years. Uh, you know, I, I, and I would say the last three years, even living through the great recession with a five, six, seven year old, which was very tough. I, I think the last three years was probably the toughest. Well, you hit on something that we as adults have got to be concerned with. And this pandemic has our kids reading less. Okay. And again, I'm into reading. I, you know, that's the reason I wrote this book because I want people to read. But, you know, according to the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, I think we call it the UNESCO, 584 million children worldwide today are experiencing reading difficulties, 584 million. Now that compares to before the pandemic, there were 460 million. So that's a 20% increase in this world of kids having uh, you know, reading difficulties. That wipes out two decades of educational gains that we have made. You know, the Stanford Graduate School of Education released a study that reported that second and third graders fluency is 30% behind what it was you know what is that the is that the report um so just so that people know timelines uh i usually don't air this but we you know record interviews a few weeks before they're published i'm in my midsummer break so we're at uh just about mid-july recording this but there was a report that just came out the other day i saw it on uh newsweek that actually said that the lockdowns because of the closed school systems uh actually was an error and made more harm than good in setting kids back to the point of what you were just discussing. You know, my, my, my daughter, for example, my wife's trying to teach her how to multiply more than just like eight times four, you know, trying to do like, Hey, what's 100 times 10, you know, with, uh, uh, three numbers times two or three numbers on the bottom. And she has no idea how to do it. It's like, she's almost missed that. And she was in, you know, the end of first grade to second grade to third grade uh, during this whole COVID time period where everything was kind of, you know, the, the system was shaken. So let's talk about what we have to do to make up for that. You're absolutely right. We as parents, and I'm talking to grandparents too, have got to get our kids in the habit of reading and reading every night. Uh, why, why do we need to do that? And, you know, I'm talking about two, three, four, five-year-old kids. Um, well, first of all, you know, all of us have a few kids' books around the house. You got you know, 20 or 30 books around. I want everybody to buy my book and read it, but there, you know, there's 100 other great books, too. But, you know, think about what it does and how we can influence these kids and make up for some of the things that they may be losing or they have lost. You know, one of the reasons that we should be pulling a little child on our lap and having them pick out the book and start reading with them is increased bonding. You know, it's a good time for us as parents and grandparents to spend quality time with our kids that we may not have as they're running around all day. It creates, you know, it, it supports listening skills. Now, you and I both know that listening skills are our number one skill that we have. You as a you know, podcaster and a communicator, you have to listen because you've got to ask the right questions. You know, in sales, I've got to listen because I've got to right, you know, make the right sales. Everybody has to have listening skills. So if you can teach these kids listening skills by having them, you know, sitting on your lap, reading a book requires them to listen. You know, that's one of the things we can start to do early on in their lives. Another thing that we need to be doing is, you know, reading a book to them creates cognitive 
in language development. You know, the, there's there's plenty of words in these books these kids don't understand. It gives you a chance to explain it to them. You know, and if you're talking about math, you can talk about math and how to do that. But it gives you a chance to explain it. There's plenty of these words in these books I don't understand. I got to look up. So it's a good way to communicate. Um, and then, you know, again, talking to three, four, five-year-olds, their attention span, they bounce off the wall all day long. Get them in your lap for 20 minutes, read them a book, you know, get some concentration and self-discipline skills. So, you know, we're, we're, that's how we as adults have got to start making up for what these kids are losing, you know, by not being able to be in school for a couple of years. And it's tough. It's tough. I mean, that's almost a full-time job upon itself. And, you know, I'm also in the sales slash biz dev type role with what I do with my um, with my day job. In fact, I write with Forbes for their uh, business development council, even and, and get published on there occasionally, like usually once or twice a month. Um, but, you know, listening is really how you grow as a person, especially if you're in sales, um, you know, or business development, you have to be able to hear the problem. I don't know how many times one of my sales reps, you know, they just get their, I guess you call them happy ears. And they think that they heard one thing. And this is why I tell them, even though I have a sales rep that is, you know, probably your age or maybe even a few years older than you, uh, who I highly, highly respect. But sometimes, you know, when he's talking to businesses, he hears the wrong thing and i'm on there and i hear the right thing no 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 we don't need to do that we need to do it this way and this is how you've got to frame it and this is how you deliver it okay just go execute trust me and he'll be like okay and ultimately he doesn't do exactly what i say he never will do exactly what i say but he will do the gist of what i say and make it his own and execute and ultimately it delivers we found that balance and we make it work beautifully um you know but listening is a critical skill and i think that goes back to to parenting as well too i mean even we've had soledad o'brien on the show here and obviously you know being a, a celebrity newscaster and um you know uh the ceo of her own production company and she was on 40 minutes. I mean, you think you'd want to talk sports or politics with her because, you know, the sports and politics shows that she's done. But no, I mean, 40 minutes on here. And it was just how do you be a stay at home mom while running your own production company that's pretty famous that you're a CEO of? And she was telling us stories, you know, about helping her kids with homework, having to listen to them, help them adjust. Then they should be like, oh, my God, it's running late throwing tater tots into the air fryer, you know, munching them down and then having to film her, her TV segments for HBO. What is it? Sports with Brian Grimble or whatever it's called and having her kids actually stand there and hold the lights. And it was just one big team effort during the major part of the lockdown. And I was like, wow, you know, that hearing stories like that is what I shoot for with these interviews because yeah, I could have asked her, a political question that she probably got asked a billion times already, but I'd rather hear that story about the tater tots and how she manages that work-life balance between, you know, her family life and being a successful TV personality and a production expert, you know, how she balanced all of that 
while being pretty much on lockdown during COVID. Great story. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, Gramps, hey, this is uh, this has been pretty fun. I think we've touched on a bunch of topics, talked about both of your books. Uh, so, I got to ask you, how can people digitally stalk you? Where can they find you out online? Also, tell them where they can buy your awesome book. You can buy the both you can buy both the books on Amazon.com or about uh, Barnes and Noble, about 100 other sites out there, or come to my sites, GrampsJeffrey.com, or the other site is I Don't Want to Turn Three.com. Or if any of your listeners want to continue this conversation, have them feel free to email me at GrampsJeffrey at Gmail.com. I love to keep talking about this. Oh, definitely, 100%, 100%. We will definitely make sure that uh, well, if they can buy the books off grampjeffrey.com uh i'll probably throw it on grampsjeffrey i'll throw that link out there i'll have it down there in the description click on that you'll be able to find his books whether it's the retailing side or if you want to get the i don't want to turn three book to kind of you know help teach your kids about all this good stuff and help them grow and really you know start reading to them again i think that's one thing a lot of parents got out of the habit of with the 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 havoc that COVID has brought upon us. I, I think there's a lot less parents reading to their kids and it's just more digital entertainment, you know, whether it's audiobooks or maybe they're reading a digital book, but they're not reading a hard copy book like this, uh, like they used to. So anyways, thank you so much, Grabs. It's been awesome having you on the show. And I'd love to have you back in another year or so and uh, catch up and see what your next book's going to be. You got it. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yep, no problem. Thank you. Cheers. Wow, that was an awesome, kind of heart-touching interview with Gramps, wasn't it? If you loved it as much as I did, do me a favor. Hit that little heart button and give us a super thanks, you know? Show your love to Sharkbite Biz. First, though, you all know the routine. If you found this interview helpful, if it gave you those warm and fuzzies, do me a favor, hit that like button, smash that subscribe button. But if you really want to help us out because you know Sharkbite Biz is the greatest kept secret in all of small business please do me a favor share this out to your friends your family your colleagues anybody that's looking for either personal professional or business growth that's what we're here to help you do break through all the fuzz that's out there and just hear the direct message something that'll make your brain go clink and bam, unlocks your full potential. That's what we're doing. Help us reach as many people as we can. Share us out Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, anywhere, Rumble, Minds, I don't care. Share us out to spread the good gossip of Shark Bite Biz. Now let's get back to the real rock star of this show, Grabs Jeffrey. Couple things here. First, uh, you know, really was surprised that he wrote so much on some of those passionate topics topics of him with the Huffington Post and working with Ariana Huffington. That was really, really, you know, gnarly to me. I mean, that I've talked to Ariana one time and it just so happened she was going to publish one of my articles. She really, really loved it. And it, it just so happened to be, I guess that's when she ended up getting out of the Huffington Post like a week or two later. And the article never actually moved forward at all, which was a bummer. Kind of got lost in the transition. If I had sent it, you know, a few weeks or a month earlier, 
could have been a total different story for me personally in those regards. But that's where you've got to, you know, think, procrastinate and, you know, you, you take your time doing things. And that's what happens. You know, that's why procrastination is bad. You need to go out there and just get it done, you know, high quality, but as fast as you can get it off your plate because sitting and waiting means that you're not able to get it flipped and turned around. Like with my case with the Huffington Post, but for Gramps Jeffrey, that worked out amazing for him. And that's really where I want to start off with, with his book, uh, you know, people that are watching or listening to the show on, you know, whatever audio platform you're on. On Spotify, iTunes, Audible, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, you know, everything that we are, Deezer, Stitcher, all those places. But I do have a copy of Grant's book, The Secrets of Retailing or How to Be Walmart Here. And you got to remember, this was written when he was the president and COO for a company. And you know, what I'm about to say has become kind of a common trend on the show. So think about this. A lot of things go full circle. You know, look at bell-bottom jeans or, you know, things, for, you know, I've just seen articles where people are buying vintage clothing and making it stylish again. You know, trends come and go and they go in circles. And that's where... Even Grant said that, yeah, you know, his book's really dated. But for right now, in this COVID area that we're in, you know, hopefully getting past COVID, maybe not, who knows. But in this era, you know, this time that we're in, the book is relevant again if you apply it with the modern mindset. Because you got to remember, a lot of the tools, automation, stuff like that, analytics, business intelligence that we have now were not available when he wrote this book, okay? So if you take his book and think about this, okay? For all those small businesses out there, if you're reading this book and then you're framing it in your mind towards how you can apply that knowledge, but with today's technology to achieve growth in your business, I think it's very extremely plausible. You know, it, it is a realistic and valid goal of being able to do. And we've talked about that. I mean, I think even during the interview, we were talking about how I've had my team, my sales teams, that is, read a couple of Jeffrey Gittimer's old books like the Sales Bible and the Little Red Book of Selling and stuff like that, because I think those things are valid today if you frame it in the modern mindset uh, that those tips and tricks from, from back in the day when they were written, they're valid again right now because COVID again has changed the game and it, it's really really uh, something that some of these older tactics are able to be used once again because we've gotten so far off the path of using some of these old tried, tested, and true methods that just need a little bit of a modern 
twist, okay? So let's win our money back from all these mega corporations that were able to stay nearly fully open during the whole pandemic, while many of you small business owners out there were not given that same privilege. You had to close your business, and that totally sucks. So I think the knowledge in this book is going to help you close that gap and start earning, start taking that money back from these mega corporations. Now, let's get into the topic of why he was on this show. You know, his new book called I Don't Want to Turn Three, it's a great children's story. Um, again, I promised I would not read it until after this episode aired because once I get it in front of my four-year-old, that book is going to end up uh, with minimal, you know, wrinkles crinkles all that good stuff so i wanted to keep it in pristine condition until now but uh we are good I, I have flicked through it personally and it's it's a great story so if you look at his previous book the secrets of retailing again okay it's written by mark joseph that's his real name again if you remember from the intro his pen name is Grant's Jeffrey. And this is how, like, again, you can tell that he's a true entrepreneur because, you know, he has six grandchildren. He's not, you know, a, a young kid out there uh, just out of college or something like that. And basically what he was able to do was he innovated how he did business. You know, he found something that was inspirational and creative to him and really meant something to his heart. As far as his family, his daughters and his um, his grandchildren, and he was actually able to turn that into something that he loves, which was creating a brand new book, inspiring a brand new children's book, doing, you know, an original story. So that was really pretty awesome. Truthfully, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the story. Now, you got to go way back in Shark Bite Biz history for this, but all the way back in season one, episode nine, we had Brian Vanderark. For people that don't know him, he's the lead singer of the band, The Freshman, or sorry, the the... Say that again. For people that don't recognize him, okay, he is the lead singer for the band The Verb Pipe. They had a previous number one hit called The Freshman, but basically they weren't able to follow up with the hits. Now, he's entrepreneurial and he found a new market. What he ended up doing was he was, instead of creating adult music, okay, rock music, he ended up making children's rock music and that gave him the ability to keep doing what he loved and still making music and while, you know, he didn't make it mega rich off these children's albums, it allowed him to keep doing what he loved. It allowed him to survive. It allowed him to provide, put egos aside, and he got inspiration from his kids to be able to do that in the same way that Gramps Jeffrey ended up getting that uh, inspiration to be able to create his book there. So awesome stuff, Gramps. Thank you so much for coming on, sharing your story, how you created your book, the inspiration behind it, talking about retails and how this stuff is valid once again. Uh, I'm very grateful you sent me the books. I'm going to have the links to both books down below. Please grab them on Amazon. Like I said, they'll be down in the descriptions. Question of the day. 
What was your last career jump? When did you move from maybe the COO to an aspiring children's author? Let us know down there. I'd love to hear some stories you all got. Do you want to be on the show? If so, please shoot an email to interviews at sharkbitebiz.com. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit that join button. For only $3 a month, you can become a baby shark. And don't forget our amazing fresh roasted coffee. You can get it at deadhousecoffee.com. Use code SHARK. You'll get 20% off. We'll get all the proceeds to do the magic that we're doing. You all know this by now, but I'll say it once again. I'm David Strasser. This is Shark Bite Biz. We'll see you all next episode. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Shark Bite Biz. We hope you got some insightful info from this podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and visit us on the web at www.sharkbitebiz.com. How has business changed for you in the 20s? Email us at podcast at sharkbitebiz.com so you can join us and share your story. 